So every time we open the Bible to the book of Philippians, we're doing some time travel back a couple of thousand years and some geographical travel into the Roman Empire. And we are joining this group of believers <clears throat> in a faraway place no, long, long ago in Philippi, in the Roman Empire, a privileged city because it's a colony of the city of Rome itself, with all the privileges of citizenship among its own citizens. And it is here that ten years earlier, a man had come with a vision from God to share the good news of a Savior. No, not the proclamation that they heard earlier when uh, Caesar Augustus united the Roman Republic and its properties in the empire into a great empire with the proclamation that the Savior has been born and... Uh, the proclamation of his rise to power being called the evangel or the good news. But here was good news of a different savior, one who had not conquered his enemies by brute power, but had been conquered himself by love for us to the point of dying on our behalf and in so doing conquering death and every fear that we have that we might belong to the kingdom of heaven. That was the good news that Paul brought to Philippi and, uh, Ten years later, he finds himself in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar, appealing the charges that uh, have been made against him, facing the outcome of either execution or freedom. And the Philippians, from a distance of 800 miles, have reached out to this uh, apostle that they love so much and in whose work as an evangelist they have shared so deeply, reached out with a financial gift and with the gift of Epaphroditus, a man from their own number to help him out, and now he writes to them, sending back Epaphroditus, and thanking them for their gift and encouraging them in their faith from his own circumstances of imprisonment. So we continue in our study of this book, now picking up in the first chapter at verse 27. And as we uh, begin to read, let's ask for God's help. God, these words of the page are your living word, when by your Spirit you open us to receive them and be transformed by them. Such latent power that we fully depend on you to activate in our lives, and we pray that you would do that as we open your word by faith. Lord, Deliver us from everything that would distract us or obstruct the sowing of the seed and the growing of the seed and its nurture and its full fruition and flowering in our lives. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did I mention we're on page 1175? If you're still looking. Paul writes... Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by op opponents 
which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict or struggle which you saw in me and now hear about me. The Word of God. So we've arrived at a slightly new section of this letter that Paul is presumably dictating to someone from his uh, house arrest, chained as he is to a one of Caesar's Praetorian guardsmen. And uh, in this uh, unfolding work of rhetoric and encouragement from Paul, the transition that he makes now from having talked about his own situation and the worry that the Philippians have for him and what the outcome of his trial is going to be and all of that is with the word only, bringing them to a focus on what they need to be concerned about. Do you need help focusing sometimes? Your to-do list is long. How do you prioritize it? There's all kinds of things that are demanding your attention. All kinds of emails and things that are uh, that come in the mailbox and all kinds of concerns and activities that you could be engaged in. How do you be selective? That's the power of this word, this simple word, only. This alone. And what Paul is doing here is he's taking the Philippians' attention as the letter is read aloud in the assembly of the church when it arrives and saying, Here is where I want you to focus your concern. And it's a bit of a hinge into something new, attaching what comes later in the letter to what Paul is already even talking about. So, what we've covered so far is an introductory section in which Paul identifies himself, identifies the recipients of the letter, and wishes them with a greeting, good health, as was customary in letter writing, but in a profoundly Christian way, praying for them that they might grow in their love and add knowledge and discernment so that they might figure out what is most important, so they they may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul is always taking their attention and focusing it and directing it. And remember, in all of the busyness of life, what is happening in the future that you need to be concerned about is not so much what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and so on, but Christ is coming. Is my heart ready for Him? Is that where my focus is? And then he goes on in a section that in in rhetoric is called the narratio or the narrative, which explains his own circumstances. He addresses their fears and concerns for Paul. They have been very worried about him. They have been worried that this active man is frustrated from being able to preach. And Paul says, don't worry about that because... It has actually served the gospel that I'm here in chains. I've got a captive audience that is a member of Caesar's elite military force, the Praetorium Guard. And I've been talking to them hour after hour. And now you've got brothers and sisters among 
this group of, uh, of, of the inner circle of Caesar's government. They've been worried, perhaps, with news that uh, when Paul is in chains, his opponents in the church have been seizing that opportunity and trying to carve out a piece of the church for themselves by preaching. And Paul says, I'm not upset about that. Don't worry about me. I'm just glad the gospel is being preached. I'm not focused on my own sort of kingdom building among the church. That's not what it's about. They're worried about the outcome. Will he be executed? Or will he be set free? And Paul says, well, either way, it's a win-win situation. For to live is Christ, but to die, even better. Again, because I get to be directly with the Lord. But for your sake, for the sake that my work among you, I have a sense, is not yet complete, I'm confident that I will be released. Only. So here, he takes us from a lot of first-person singular, my situation, I'm okay, to a section that is filled with second-person plural, you, you guys, the church, only this. Let this be your focus. You can worry about me and Epaphroditus and all kinds of other things, but here is what needs to occupy your concern only. And what is that focus? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. So that whether I come and see or remain absent, whatever the outcome, Paul's confident that he'll be able to return to Philippi, but he's not absolutely sure. But whatever happens, here is your task, that you live your life in such a way that it suits, is appropriate to the good news of the Messiah, of Christ. So these terms that he's using are saturated with politics in a very political city, a very Roman city, a very flag-waving Roman Empire city that adores Caesar, where Caesar is already being worshipped among the pantheon of gods, where people are so proud of their citizenship, a lot of them retired military, who have been given a place here in this Roman colony. And he's reminding them of the good news, again, a a term that was used for the arrival of Caesar to settle all of the problems of the empire and establish the peace of Rome. No, for the good news of the Messiah, the Anointed One, that Hebrew Jewish term that refers to the King of Kings, God's appointed King. Now, what Paul says here Conduct, how does it have it? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Is not unlike what Paul writes in other letters as he begins to apply the good news that he's been talking about to, well, what do we do in response? How do we live our lives as believers, as the ones who have received God's grace? What does that look like in our conduct and in our attitudes? However, the unfortunate thing about This translation, and a lot of English translations, is it obscures the fact that Paul does not use the word that he usually uses when we read in translation, conduct yourselves. Usually he uses the word 
peripateo, that's the Greek word, that is really from a Hebrew metaphor for living your life. And it's the word to walk around. So the idea that life is a journey and as you go through life, you're walking. So, you know, we use this in church circles especially, right? Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. You know, the walk of the Christian is how you conduct your life, not just what you say you believe, but how you live. Very practical application of the good news. However, here, Paul has selected a word that is different. It's not peripateo. And it's the only time in all of his writings he ever uses this particular word. It only shows up in the Greek New Testament one other time on the lips of Paul in the book of Acts as a riot has been caused in Jerusalem and he is seized and he has to appear before the Sanhedrin and he's defending himself. He is not a rabble-rouser. He is not guilty of high treason, as they are trying to accuse him of. In fact, he says, no, I have been a good citizen. And that's the verb here, not peripateo, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, but a word that, that is related to our word politics, which means to be a citizen. The verb of being a citizen. In other words, what Paul is saying here with this uniquely chosen word, especially for the situation of the people to whom he is writing this letter, is only be citizens in a way that is worthy of the good news of the Messiah. And Paul, as we're going to come back in chapter 3 and learn again, is referring not to their Roman citizenship as highly prized as it is, but to their citizenship in a different kingdom. To the identity that they have through the Messiah and the good news of His coming. Now, as I've already said, in Philippi, Roman citizenship was a a huge thing. Of the 100 million or so people in the Roman Empire, only about 5% were full Roman citizens. Now, if you were a citizen of the city of Philippi, because it was a colony, not just of the Roman Empire, but of the city of Rome itself, you enjoyed the privileges of full Roman citizenship. You did not have to pay taxes. Not bad, huh? You could not be conscripted for military service. In fact, a lot of the people in Philippi, as I already mentioned, became citizens as a reward for faithful service in the military. You had the right to a fair trial, and you could not be beaten and tortured like other people could. And if you know Paul's own journey, you know how his citizenship came to apply to his own torture in the city of Philippi when he was jailed there himself. Your marriage, your property, uh, your business contracts were all protected by the government of Rome and you could sue or be sued and have a trial on these things in a Roman court. Now, these things were not the privileges of the vast majority of people. 
Rome had used citizenship by this time to cultivate loyalty among its diverse empire. So you have all kinds of nations, all kinds of nationalities, ethnic groups across the Mediterranean Sea in this vast empire. And here is what you hold out as, a, 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 as the government of Rome trying to win the loyalty of these citizens that might despise you. The hope of achieving and acquiring Roman citizenship. Not everyone in Philippi would have been Roman citizens. There would have been a lot more Roman citizens there than elsewhere. But citizenship was either something that you held in great pride as possessing or something that you wanted more than anything else, right? If you were a slave, you could become a citizen if you were owned by a citizen and he paid a price to set you free in reward for a good good service. Or you could be born a citizen, as Paul was, because his parents were Roman citizens, full Roman citizens. You know, they had all kinds of classifications. You, we, taught, we used the term second-class citizens in Rome. That was very much the case. Here, you're either an American citizen or you're not. Well, there are other st- statuses, like uh, a resident alien, like I am. But in any case, in Rome, full Roman citizenship had all of these perks were highly desirable. And whatever your nationality or background, you could aspire to citizenship. And you were encouraged to enter into the military and put in your 25 years so that you could get your your Roman citizenship. And so many of the Philippians, the upper crust of Philippian society was exactly that. These are military families where they had put in 25 years of service to the, the army of Rome and they had acquired as a result some property in Philippi and citizenship. And what Paul is referring to here is a different citizenship. Now, Paul himself was a citizen of Rome. It wasn't something that he was overly proud of. It was something that he would use if it practically served his true life purpose, which was the extension of the gospel of Christ. So, notice in the story of of the planting of the church in Philippians, and this takes us back to the book of Acts that we read when we started this uh, study in in Philippians, (laughs) that Paul uses and doesn't use his Roman citizenship in really interesting ways. When it comes to being beaten, remember there was a riot when he delivered uh, a a woman from, uh, a slave woman from demon possession. And uh, a riot got started and all of these uh, proud Roman citizens says, these Jews are, are causing trouble here because... If you are among a solid Roman population, it was generally very anti-Semitic. And they get thrown in jail and beaten because that's how you treated someone who was causing trouble without a fair trial. And it's only afterwards, when they are to be set free, uh, they explain, you know, the the earthquake and all the rest that happens, and and, uh, they find out that Paul is a Roman citizen. And now they know they're in trouble because they beat a Roman citizen. And Paul says, are you going to uh, just ask me to go away quietly? No, you're going to escort me out of the city. So it's very interesting that he does not use his citizenship to avoid personal suffering. He endures the beating. There he is, beaten and bloodied, along with Silas, singing hymns in prison. What a powerful testimony that was. How much that was used by God in a way that it would not have happened had Paul simply thought, my citizenship is a tool for my own comfort. 
It's very interesting. It's a, it's a challenging example that Paul gives us. But then when it comes to being set free and leaving behind this small group of believers in this hostile city where they're not going to engage in their civil duty of worshiping all of the gods of the Roman Empire and they're going to face a great deal of misunderstanding, hostility uh, and opposition from that. He wants to leave them publicly with an exoneration of what he's done. And so he uses his citizenship to be conducted publicly out of the city. Paul here is urging us to conduct our lives to determine how we should live based on our identity. And this identity is not that Roman citizenship that is to be aspired to or if it has already been obtained to be held on to um, with great pride as something that ranks you above your fellows, but this is a citizenship that is of the of a, of a very opposite nature. So, Roman citizenship was something to climb up to, to aspire to, but what we have here is Jesus coming down from heaven and bringing to us citizenship. Citizenship that is open to everyone, to the slave girl, to the jailer, to Lydia, to everybody through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the way in which we are to live. Our lives are to be informed by the good news that we cling to of forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. Live your lives in a way that suits, is appropriate to that citizenship, that identity. Maybe when you see that word worthy, it causes you to tremble because you think of all, boom, the demands that are laid on you and am I ever going to be good enough so that I can say I am worthy of the gospel? But even in saying it that way, worthy of the gospel, I hope that you hear a little bit of uh, almost a contradiction if you think of the gospel as something that you have to make yourself worthy of to obtain. I want you to notice the order in which Paul writes. When we select just a few verses to study, it doesn't mean that it's not part of the fabric of a letter that begins at the beginning and ends at the end. And it all flows in a certain sequence for a certain reason. So Paul opens this letter by identifying his audience, and it's not insignificant, even though it's a standard part of letter writing, as what? What does he call them? Saints. Holy, set apart. That's what they are. Not because they earned that. Not because they were born that way or because their parents were special or because they put in their 25 years of military service. It's not because they were slaves that were set free by a price paid by their owner, but it's because the sheer grace of Jesus Christ that makes them holy, set apart, special in the eyes of God. Those That peculiar uh, people for God's own possession, like we read in that responsive reading in First Peter chapter 2. You are saints. That's who you are. Now live in accordance with your identity. That's what Paul is saying. Live a life that befits who you are. So it starts with reminding you of who you are. What defines this citizenship? What kind of values does it have? It is a citizenship whose values are based on the good news of Jesus Christ. 
that in our darkness He came and brought light, that in our spiritual death He came and brought life, that in our sin He brought forgiveness and grace. Now, what does that mean in our own conduct? What does that mean in what's really important, what we chase after day after day, what we put first place in priority, only do this, focus on this? What does that mean in terms of how we interact with other people, how we treat our families, how we live in our marriages, how we live with our, uh, the people around us? What does this kingdom look like? Well, it doesn't share all of Rome's values, and in some ways it's utterly contradictory. It's a kingdom that has come to you by grace. It's not something you're striving to earn. It's been given to you. Live that way. That good news. Live out of the joy of that good news. This is the letter of joy. This is written by a, a, an apostle who's in prison because of this citizenship. Because he chose this citizenship as more important than any other. What does it mean to be counted as citizens of heaven? As he puts it later on in chapter 3. Remember our citizenship is in heaven. Well, it means you've been granted the gift of faith. And along with that, what? To suffer. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I don't know what your perspective is on hardship and suffering. It's a part of life. Everyone faces hardship and suffering. People strove for Roman citizenship in order to lighten the load of life's suffering and hardship. Imagine, suddenly you didn't have to pay taxes. Suddenly you didn't have to worry about being stopped by a centurion being beaten. These are good things. These are ways of alleviating personal suffering. And here we read about a citizenship that is a gift from God, and it includes the, the ability to trust in Christ, and for His sake, it includes as a free gift for every citizen, suffering. Is that your perspective, that suffering is a gift? Can you testify that that has been your experience, that in going through hardships with faith now, the whole idea of suffering is not something that depletes you of life, but is something that is redeemed by Christ so that you are conformed to His likeness. That's the point. You learn to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God through suffering, just like Jesus did. So here Paul is laying out the part of rhetoric that's called the propositio, or the proposal. Here's what he's proposing. Having narrated his own experience, he's saying, now this is what I want you to focus on. Here is your main concern. And he's drawing on his own example as he's spoken about his own attitude as he's facing suffering. Right? He's facing the prospect of possibly being executed. How's he going through that? 
Well, now as he instructs the Philippians how they should live and conduct themselves, he's already provided them with his own attitude. He's frustrated, imprisoned. Does that stop him from uh, being used by God? Is, has his suffering resulted in the, in the uh, loss of ministry? No, it's only expanded the ministry. He's shown them how to conduct themselves as citizens of this kingdom. He's shown them the power and the value of suffering. Of that, this two-part gift. Okay, it's not just the gift of suffering, which in, its, in and of itself I don't think would be good news. But it's been granted on you for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, for Christ's sake, to believe on him, to trust him, to face things not with fear, but trusting that he is with you, that he has redeemed you, that he has saved you, and now that gift informs now along with that comes the honor of suffering for his sake. With faith. What a radical perspective on suffering. We don't embrace suffering for its own sake. But when it's given to us, to the life of faith, we recognize that God has a purpose in it, and we recognize that it's part of our journey to become like Christ. It's a chance to exercise the gift of faith. So it's been granted to you not only to believe... Do you recognize that faith is a gift? That's something that the Philippians recognized the way it's set up in the book of Acts and explained the first convert there, Lydia. Her faith was not something that she derived from any capacity she had herself, but the Lord opened her heart to receive the message. It's a gift. Do you celebrate the gift that you believe in Jesus Christ? That's what we're here to do. It's been given to you. We all face hardship. We all face suffering. You've been given the gift of putting your trust in something beyond yourself, beyond your own capacity to sort of slug through the suffering and hope that you don't get destroyed and chewed up by it. You have a Savior. You have a Savior who has purchased you and delivered you from judgment. You can trust Him with all of your life's circumstances. He's paid the price to set you free from condemnation. So that you can say, just as Paul did earlier, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What's the, what's the worst that can happen to you? Being put to death. That's what Paul, Paul's saying, I'm facing that. And here's my attitude. And why is that? He didn't always have that. But God gave him faith. And along with that now, to suffer. And if you face your hardships and sufferings, in faith. How does that make a difference? 
Verse 28. With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're striving. We're striving together in harmony, in unity, to keep believing. That's why we can't forsake the gathering together of ourselves. These are military, appropriately military images of being united, of being a rock-solid united force as we struggle. Military images and uh, athletic images. In a Roman city, there were athletic games and this word that you have at the very end in in verse 30, the same conflict or agony is the, uh, is the athletic term of overcoming great obstacles and enduring. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by opponents. See, that's the gift of suffering with and as part of the package of the gift of faith. So that when you are misunderstood, when your values are different, when you don't go and worship at the altars of the gods of the empire, the gods here in America of whatever it is, materialism and personal selfish values, but you are devoted to the good news of the gospel. You are devoted to living a life of grace. You are devoted to following this one who left heaven and renounced his own privileges, became a servant, as Paul is going to uh, make in chapter 2, the very epicenter of the whole epistle, the example of Christ. When he's proposing that we focus on this, on our citizenship in heaven, he's already provided his own example of how he faces sufferings, how he faces uh, the terror of uh, the prospect of being put to death, but then... He leads us to the ultimate example in chapter 2 of Jesus Christ who gave Himself up even to death, obedience to death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted Him. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by opponents. How can you face threats, opposition, malice without being conquered by them? Without being discouraged by them? Without being terrified by them? How can Paul face the prospect of execution... And not just lose it. Faith. It's not that we go through sufferings that are completely and in every way different from everyone else in our society. It's that we get to see and they get to see how faith in Jesus Christ makes a difference how being able to face these sufferings knowing that your ultimate worst news has been completely taken away, taken care of. So that, as Paul is going to say later on, you have a peace that passes understanding, that protects your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And when you're anxious and when you worry, you pray. And you remember to be grateful for the ways God has blessed you, and you rejoice in the Lord always. You, He's going to say it again, rejoice. Look at the testimony of a person who faces opposition and suffering, not by returning evil for evil, 
but with the quiet confidence of faith. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that from God. Which is from God? The salvation, the destruction, or making these things a sign? It's all from God. God has designed this so that you are going through what you are going through and it's going to be a powerful sign to those around you because it's utterly opposite to what they would expect. How? By faith. This gift of faith is an amazing resource you have, Christian. Do you use it? When you face troubling and anxious situations, when you face personal heartbreak and loss, faith is not a way of sort of escaping and diminishing the painful realities and hardships of life. But it is a way of facing them and not being defeated by them. It's that gift of God that says, trust me. Those aren't cheap words to say. Maybe from me. I'm not in prison. I'm not facing the death sentence. But I'm just passing along to you words from a man who is. So you don't have to take my word for it. But I think his word comes with a great deal of gravitas and credibility. It's not as though you can say to Paul in these circumstances, oh, Paul, you don't understand what I'm going through. In fact, he's probably got it worse than the Philippians do at this time, for the most part. So, not being frightened or alarmed, the word is, have you ever been horseback riding and then something jumps out and frightens your horse and you get kicked off? And I remember my experience at Vandercamp being thrown off a horse. I still haven't recovered from that trauma. But that's, anyway, that's the way this word is used elsewhere. Being alarmed, right? Being thrown into sudden panic. And Paul says, that doesn't have to be your response to opposition, to hatred, to misunderstanding. And in our fear, we so often can respond to these kinds of things with a fear that expresses itself in, in, in being terrified or in being angry and violent We're lashing out because we're trying to save ourselves or protect something that the gospel says has already been saved and is already fully protected. You can't get better coverage anywhere than what you have in Christ. So as you take that journey down the highway and you didn't sign up for AAA and you've got a really lousy automobile insurance policy, you're a little nervous what might happen. Especially since you happen to be driving through, uh, you know, a, a, a college town full of drunk frat boys and there's a snowstorm. Something like that, right? You're going to be a little concerned. But if you've got the best insurance coverage imaginable, and AAA's there, and your cell phone's working because you didn't buy cricket like me, but you went with AT&T or some reliable company like that. It makes a difference. That's what I'm talking about. You go into every situation with Jesus Christ, with the good news, 
That's how you face it. The opposition comes your way and you don't have to react as you used to, personally, out of fear. Or with violent anger. And if you don't, then it's going to, it's going to be a testimony. And Peter writes in First Peter to uh, a suffering church. He says, just be ready because they're going to ask you. Why in these circumstances do you have hope? Where does that come from? And there's your opportunity. Because they've noticed something in you. It was, if you'll recall, our preaching through the Gospel of Mark at the very end, that conversion of the centurion that had overseen the crucifixion of Jesus. And Mark specifically says it was having witnessed the manner of his death that the centurion was converted. He had tortured people this way many, many times over. He had risen to the rank of centurion. He had a bunch of soldiers driving the nails in tying the bodies up, listening to them scream, listening to them cuss from the cross in their agony and pain. He's seen it countless times. And it never made an impression on his hard heart until he saw this man and how he died. What a testimony. It's a gift from God. It's a reminder to us. We're saved. You know, this isn't something that you can pre-plan too much. But the good news is the suffering will come, whether you plan on it or not. Okay? So I'm telling you stuff that you might not be able to apply right away. Now, maybe you think the preacher's always saying, make sure you apply this sermon immediately. But for this one, I don't know if there will be a circumstance today to apply it. But someday when you are suddenly thrown off like that frightened horse and you are alarmed and it will come back to you. Oh no, I can face this with peace. Because Jesus Christ has saved me. I can trust in Him. Instead of fear, I could choose faith to trust in Christ. And that's when it will come. But that suffering will come. Those opportunities will come. And it will be a gift from God because it will testify to you that you have something going on in here that has no natural explanation. Well, this is not like me. How am I able to respond in this way because it's not dependent on your own psychological and emotional resources. It's a gift of God. You've been given the gift of faith. And it kicks in then at that time of suffering as the gospel has been seeded in you again and again. Boom, it's a time where that latent seed maybe springs suddenly and bursts into life in the face of opposition. And you are encouraged because you remember You are saved. It's hard to remember that when you're not suffering. But when you're suffering, and that gift of faith is activated, it's a little gift from God. Poor in spirit. Mourning. Here's happiness for you. Because you're comforted. Because you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And a testimony to those around you, like that centurion. Because they're expecting you. They're expecting you to lose it. They're expecting you to be terrified. Because they think, as Hebrews chapter 2, we read not too long ago in these studies, says, because they assume that you're still a slave of the fear of death. 
they assume that the devil still got that grip on you. And when they see someone respond to hardship and opposition, set free from that slavery, it's a sign. Maybe they'll see you and they think, what would I do if our roles were reversed and I was being attacked? Would I respond like that? So I want to leave you with this, that what Paul is insistent on is that they draw strength from their faith in unity from one another. Here is the theme. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So how do we do this? Maybe we think, well, in the day of trial and testing, will I stand? Will I show strength, the strength of faith? And maybe you doubt that you will. But you know what? You're in the right place because you're with a whole bunch of other people that are doubting that they will. If you're a weakling, be filled with joy because you're among a whole group of weaklings. But a whole group of weak people together can remind each other of where their strength comes from. And that's why we need one another. And that's what we are to be to one another. The citizenship of this kingdom acts very differently from secular society in Philippi, where you either say, I'm a citizen, what are you? Or you say, man, there's one thing I need to obtain is that citizenship, that rank, whatever. But in this society, you know, we're all citizens, everyone. We're all included. And in this society, we are brought together so that we can preach the gospel to one another. Okay? So that we will be strengthened. So that when you are fearful, you know, it, this isn't stoicism where I assume that, or anyone can assume, that they're going to face every startling situation and immediately have utter peace of mind. And maybe you are fearful and you're facing something that you feel utterly crushed by. And here you are with other people who are not going to give you their strength, but they are going to point you to the strength that they rely on. They're going to preach the gospel to you. That's what we need to do to one another. We need to meet with one another. We need to talk to one another. We need to say to each other, you are going to be okay. You are going to get through this. God will be with you. Not from a position of strength talking down to people, what's your problem, you weakling? But from a position of weakness talking across to a fellow weakling in Christ. Because it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. But it's that good news. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. He's conquered. He's got this. So stay united. Or get united. 
right? A united church is not just one that's not overtly divided. It's one that's integrated. It's one that people connect to, not on the basis of, of a common social bond or ethnic bond or uh, socioeconomic bond, but on this bond, be of one mind. The word there is the word soul or psyche. And it doesn't refer to just being of one mind in an intellectual sense where you all think the same about everything. Obviously, there are core things that we believe. It's called the gospel. It's not called, I'm lining up with you on every way in which you believe you need to keep the Sabbath or what you should eat or not eat or what day you should celebrate or not celebrate and that kind of thing that Paul talks about elsewhere in the churches. But here, we are of one mind because we embrace the good news of the grace of God. That's the basis of our fellowship. And that's the unity that we need to celebrate and deepen by being there for one another. Like a stake driven in the ground beside a plant. With little strings wrapped around it. That's Christian unity and fellowship. And where there's an attack, there's a rallying, a strengthening, we're with you. We've got your back. Support. Now, that is something you can apply, right? You don't have to be suffering. Someone else is suffering right now. So, you can support them. You can share the gospel with them. God, we thank You for the Word today. The kingdom that You have freely given to us. The gift of faith. Lord, thank You that our sufferings are not uh, in opposition to the life that we have in Christ, but You have redeemed them and You use them to strengthen us. Lord, thank You that we face no suffering or opposition without that gift of faith. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Christ. Lord, help us to be a church where we encourage one another. Fix your eyes on Christ. Don't lose heart. Lord, give us wisdom as we support and encourage one another. Give us uh, ears that are quick to listen, tongues that are slow to speak. So we pray, Lord, that you would, in this word, walk with us in our minds in the week ahead. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.